Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. The persecution that we face, how do we survive it? We expect it. We embrace it. We understand that God can use us. He'll open doors to change people's lives. And we know that in the end, the results are God's to do. What does it mean to be persecuted for your faith in Jesus Christ? In different parts of the world, it means different things. In some places in the world, being persecuted for following Jesus can mean rejection by family and friends, prison, even death. In our culture in the United States, it primarily means being ridiculed or rejected, being made fun of for your faith. As followers of Jesus, how should we respond to persecution, whatever form it takes? I believe it will radically change the persecution that you face in life. It will radically change the way you look at people. If we just learn to ask ourselves, where will this person spend eternity? Do you remember that question? Where will this person spend eternity? Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. Today we're continuing our discussion on the subject of persecution in our series, Survivor. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Clay took us to Acts chapter 17 and the story of the Apostle Paul in Athens, where we learned some do's and don'ts when it comes to persecution. This event in Acts 17 probably most closely mirrors the type of persecution that you and I might face. I can just hear Paul, oh, someone called me an idle babbler. How will I ever go on? Oh, no. In this message, Pastor Clay is continuing into Acts 17 as God has opened a door for Paul to proclaim Christ there on Mars Hill. Let's discover a few more do's and don'ts when we face persecution. Now here's Pastor Clay. For the last two weeks, we have been in Acts chapter 17 and we have been looking at how do we survive obstacles and or specifically persecution that may come against a person if they're a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been here, if you, want, if you go back and watch or listen to those messages, we put that in a context because persecution in, in America is very, maybe very different from persecution in other types of other parts of the world, correct? You understand what I'm saying? Uh, but nevertheless, in Acts chapter 17, Paul runs into some persecution. I'll put it in air quotes because, as I said last week, the persecution Paul faced in Acts 17, and that part of Acts 17 was almost like being on vacation for Paul uh, compared to what he had been through in some of the other places where he had been. But nevertheless, what he faced there is probably or probably most closely resembles the kind of persecution that you and I might face here in America. And so the question becomes, all right, how am I going to survive that? And again, in the Christian context, how do I thrive in that? Somebody uh, comes against me. Somebody makes fun of me. Somebody uh, doesn't like me at work. Somebody doesn't like me at school. Somebody, doesn't, somebody wants to make fun of me because I say, you know, whatever the case may be, what is my response? How do I handle that? How do I honor God in the midst of that? Because I think if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, most people would say, you know what? I want to honor God in the way I handle all the different situations and settings and, and relationships that I have. I want to honor God in that. Most of you would say that. So persecution, in a sense, is, is, a, is a connection to a relationship with somebody that may be antagonistic or coming against us or all that sort of thing. So, so how do I thrive in the middle of that? In Acts chapter 17, in those verses 16 and following, uh, I mentioned to you uh, four do's and don'ts for surviving persecution. If you were here, I know this is, sounds familiar. If you weren't here, then this is probably just breathtaking to you. But anyway... Here it is. Here's what we started. We said, uh, we said, don't be at ease with the lostness around you. There in verse 16, where, where, where Paul's 
you know, basically gone down there again. He's gone down there because of persecution, but he's been run out of Thessalonica. He's been run out of Berea, and he goes down there. Some, some guys take him down there and say, now, uh, Silas and Timothy will be along pretty soon. Just cool it, and when they get here, then y'all can decide where you're going to go on your missionary journey. But in verse 16, when Paul saw the lostness around him, he could not, could not remain silent. And so th- that's the application for us. Don't be at ease with the lostness around you. Second thing we said was do be intentional about trying to engage people around that. And we saw that in those verses and how Paul did that and why that's uh, uh, applicable for us in our lives. Third, we said don't be surprised by persecution that comes against you. Don't be surprised if you stand up for Jesus in a culture that, that is, is, is rapidly moving away from the idea of God and, and his purposes and plans for life and existence and all that kind of stuff. Don't be surprised if persecution to some degree, whatever it might be, comes against you. And then fourth... Do be ready for doors God will open for you. Do be ready for doors God will open for you. And it is that last particular do that launches us into the rest of Acts chapter 17 that I'm about to read in just a moment. It's that last particular do and this door that God opens as a result of persecution that came into Paul's life. And I left you, if you were here last week, I left you with this statement, and in the statement is this. God takes opposition to the gospel, to the message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. God takes opposition to the gospel and turns it into opportunity for the gospel. That's what we find that God will do. And so even in that statement, there's kind of a, a clue there as to how we should approach persecution when it comes against us. That we're not necessarily trying to, to get out of it, although nobody likes to be mistreated or abused or called names or all that kind of stuff. We've talked about that. But the very idea that God could take the persecution that you face at work, at school, uh, in your neighborhood, whatever, wherever it might be, that God might take that opposition to your desire to, to live for Jesus and share him and actually turn it into opportunities for the gospel. So... Launching off from that, let's look at the rest of the story, so to speak, in Acts chapter 17 and look at four more do's and don'ts when we face persecution. Because of the amount of content in the rest of Acts 17, it's just, y'all, if you, if you come here regularly, you know it's just me, I, I'm sorry, but I'm, because of the amount of content, we're only going to cover two of them today. Two of the do's and don'ts today, and then, Lord willing, two more next week and finish up their Acts 17 and the, and the subject of surviving persecution. Acts chapter 17, uh, beginning in verse 22. Okay? All right? So Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move 
and exist as even some of your own poets have said, for we are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed and among whom also were Dionysus the Oropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for uh, this, this encounter, that, uh, this door that you opened for the Apostle Paul. Uh, he'd been beat up and run out of a lot of towns. He'd been thrown in prisons. He'd been stoned. He'd been whipped. He'd gone through a lot of stuff. And so in some sense, being sneered at, being called an idle babbler as the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers called him, being called a few names, that was, that was really nothing, I guess, uh, for Paul. But I'm grateful that you did open this door and that he was willing to step through that door. And God, I ask today that you would teach us from the truth of Acts 17 how we step through the open doors that you provide for us, be they through persecution or perhaps uh, any other means through which you would accomplish your purposes, Father God. I pray that we would be a people who would be a people of action, even as that's part of our, our prayer for cross-culture. We'd be a people of action. We'd be unwilling to just sit idly by while the world is lost and in need of a Savior. So God, take the truth today from your word. Use me, your messenger boy. I'm very honored to get to, to speak your truth today. Apply it to each person's heart. Every person in this place may be at a different station or place or uh, experience in their life. And so I'm smart enough to know that your word can make application uh, in different ways, even different from what the, the particular specific application may be uh, today from my lips. So God, I pray that your word would accomplish its purposes because it is truth that any mixture of error. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to divide. It's able to cut out of our lives the things that don't belong. It's able to sow into our lives what should be there. May your spirit speak to each of us and accomplish what you would desire to do in each life in this place. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Okay, so we looked at those four from the first or that earlier part of Acts 17. Now uh, let's look at a couple more, and we're going to start this morning with this idea. Don't be offensive. Don't be offensive. I won't read verse 22 and 23 there. I, I, I just read that just a second ago, but if, if it is our mission and our desire to, to share Christ, and I don't think anyone would argue that it, that it is the biblical commission that we have been given, to share the good news of God's love for people and, and that sort of thing, it is quite reasonable to assume that that would be offensive to people, that the message would be offensive to people. But listen to me, the messenger shouldn't be offensive. What I mean by that is that you and I shouldn't be so, so arrogant or so obnoxious or so offensive in our interactions with people 
really all the time, not just when I'm going to try and share Christ, but all the time. Everybody's, I'm sure, had some example or seen something where some, some person treats a, a, a waiter or waitress just very not good, and then for a tip wants to plunk down a track. After, no, what I'm saying is to, be, to, to not be offensive at all as a follower of Jesus Christ. The, uh, now, what we're going to see here in just a second is, and we'll see it more specifically next week, Paul doesn't shy away from the truth. But you don't have to be offensive in your presentation of that truth. Do you understand what I'm saying? Paul uh, in Romans 9 and uh, Peter in 1 Peter 2, both of them quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, say to remind us that, that the message of Jesus, or that Jesus is, he is a stumbling block. He is a rock of offense. He just said, this is, this, is, this is the message of Jesus. It's a stumbling block. It's a rock of offense. It's a stumbling block to the Jews that, that, that they needed a Messiah. It can be a stumbling block to Gentiles. Because think of it this way. Imagine, and maybe you've had conversations like this. If you begin to talk to someone and, begin, and you get in some conversation, humbly approaching and extra stuff, but, but in the course of this discussion or this sharing of this, this gospel, this good news, this message of Jesus, to have to say to a person, listen, uh, you seem like a really good person, and, 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 and I'm sure you are, but no matter how good you are, you are a hell-deserving sinner. We all are. We all are. And the only thing that we can do to, to alleviate that situation is to, is to turn in faith to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the one who died the death he did not deserve so that you and I, by faith and repentance, could have the eternal life that we don't deserve. Now, can you understand how, how that might be an offensive message to somebody? To say to them, yeah, you're, you're a nice person, you're a great parent, you're great whatever. But the Word of God says that we've all sinned and come short of the glory, the standard of God. Can you see how that might be offensive to someone? Can you imagine if you said to a person, listen, no matter how genuine how sincere your religious beliefs are. And I have no doubt that they are, but no matter how sincere and genuine they are, if they are not based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, they're wrong and you're lost. You can kind of see how that might be offensive to someone. If someone is offended by the message of the cross, there's probably not a lot that we can do about that. But you and I should not be the one that is offensive. Do you understand what I'm saying? Paul goes in there. He doesn't go in with guns blazing, right? And listen, Paul was highly educated. I have no doubt that he could stand toe-to-toe with the, the philosophers, the intellects, and the religious leaders of Athens in that day. I have no doubt that he could do that. But he doesn't go in there with arrogance. He doesn't go in there with pride. He doesn't go in there with, you idiots, how can you believe this? He goes in there humbly. He goes in there Sincerely, even when he says there in verse 24, somewhere in there where he says, what you therefore worship in ignorance. Even in that, he's not being uh, insulting. What he's saying is, listen, I, I even see you guys are very religious people. He actually pays them a compliment from their, from their point of view. I, I can see that you guys are very religious. Matter of fact, I see that you've got a, an idol here set up to the unknown God. You're trying to worship a God that you don't even know anything about. I, I've got some great news for you. I can tell you about him. And he just approaches it from that standpoint. We don't need to be offensive in our approach to the gospel. See, 
what Paul is doing, and this is important for us in our application with interacting with other people that may say, oh, you're Jesus whatever, right? You're crazy. You're, in our interactions with people like that, and you may have some of those at work or, or wherever the case may be, in our interactions with that, we need to understand this. And this is actually my, my, my life mission statement, what Paul is doing. Paul is, is meeting them where they are in order to take them to where God wants them to be. That's what he's doing. He doesn't come in there and say, oh, you're all, y'all, y'all are just, uh. No, he says, wow, I, I can see you guys are very, as I looked around the city, y'all are very religious people. And they were. I mean, that was SOP. That was standard operating procedure for the Roman and Greek world in which Paul uh, was interacting. And by the way, it's still standard operating procedure for, for much of the world today. I can see you're very religious people and you're very sincere in your belief. I see you've even got an idol set up uh, to, to an unknown God. I, I, can, I can tell you about him. See, don't, don't be offensive. I, I, a number of years ago, I was in, in Africa on a mission trip, specifically in Kenya. And uh, while we were on the trip, uh, at the, there was a large number of people and teams. We were broken into multiple teams. And each one of the teams were sent out to different destinations during the day, rural parts of the uh, western part of Kenya, out, out near uh, Kasumu, uh, near the Ugandan border. And uh, we were assigned a van driver, and van drivers were hired to work those uh, week or ten days that we were there in the country. And they, some of them were believers, but some of them were not. The van driver that we had was a Muslim. And so all during the week, uh, we were treating that man like we would treat anybody, like, you, like we should treat everybody. Kindly and lovingly and, and ha- asking about his family and his children and all that sort of things. And perhaps the hope that we might be able to share more about Christ. But one day, as we were going out to the village where we were headed, uh, one of the guys in our team uh, decided this was his day to share Jesus. He was going to share Jesus no matter what. You know what I'm saying? And so he got in the, in the, in the front seat, what's affectionately known as the suicide seat. Uh, he, got, he got in the front seat. And so we're in the other things. And I was in the back row. And this guy starts into this driver about, he just, ju- he just jumps into the gospel to tell him about what Jesus did and who Jesus is and, and, what, and he's saying, what all he's saying. And, and in very short order, the Muslim van driver very calmly says, I am a Muslim. I, I, I do not want to hear about Jesus. And the guy says, well, uh, all right, I don't understand that, but, but you do know that Jesus died for your sins, and, that, and on the third day he rose from the dead, and he, just, da, 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 and he just goes on and on and on. Keeps going, keeps going. And again, the van driver says, I, I am Muslim. I, I'm not interested in hearing this. And the guy says, well, okay, I guess if you want to go to hell and burn in hell for all of eternity, because, you know, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, and hell is where you're bound, and that's what you deserve if you don't turn to Jesus. And he just goes on and just keeps going. And so finally, uh, a guy that was in the seat of, uh, ahead of me reached up and took this guy. Let's say his name was Alex. I don't remember his name. Uh, he took, took him by the shoulder and he said, Alex, stop. Because that's, that's not, listen, you don't, you don't argue people into the kingdom of God. You love people into the kingdom of God. And, and if a person says, listen, I, I'm just, I'm, mm, not for me, don't want to hear it. What do you get? You're going to, oh, yes, you do. And will, me tie, no, you understand what I'm saying? Don't be offensive. Uh, Apostle Paul said this to the church in Colossae, Colossians chapter 4. Let your speech always be, watch this, with grace. Let your speech always be with grace. As though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond 
to each person. Each and every person is different. Their state, where they are in life is different. Their receptivity to this message of God's love and his, and his forgiveness and redemption and it may be different and what they're going through may be different. And, and Paul's saying there, listen, it always ought to be with grace. And then this idea of being seasoned with salt, flavor, the reasoning out, where is each person? How do I approach this person in any respect to share the message of Christ? I have shared this story before, but it's been a number of years. So some of you have not heard it before, and the rest of you forgot it anyway, so it won't matter. A number of years ago, I heard Adrian Rogers tell this story. Now, Adrian Rogers was a great uh, pastor for many years of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. He's gone on to be with the Lord, died a number of years ago now. But before he pastored Bellevue Baptist Church, Adrian Rogers was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Merritt Island, Florida, back in the uh, 60s and, and into the early 70s, I think, during the, during the space race, during the, the Saturn uh, project and putting a man on the moon. And so uh, there were a lot of, obviously NASA was going and blowing and lots of uh, engineers and scientists and all that kind of stuff. Well, a woman was attending uh, First Baptist Church of Merritt Island who was a follower of Jesus. Her husband was not. And she asked Dr. Rogers if he would go and visit her husband. And Dr. Rogers said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. And so he went out there one evening uh, to visit the gentleman. He was very cordial, very kind. He said, come on in, Dr. Rogers, you're very welcome. They sat down at the kitchen table and uh, the, the uh, engineer from NASA said, you know, listen, I appreciate you coming out. I know that my wife has asked you to come out and talk to me. That's fine. He said, I'm happy to talk to you, but I want you to understand that uh, I'm an atheist. And so Dr. Rogers always with grace and seasoned with salt, said, he says, oh, okay, I understand. Well, let, let me ask you a question. He said, would you consider yourself an honest atheist or a dishonest atheist? And I said, well, I, I don't know. What do you mean? He said, well, an, an honest atheist would examine the evidence before just declaring that God doesn't exist. A dishonest atheist just, just doesn't even, isn't even interested in the evidence. That's hard to say. And just, just, just declares himself an atheist. He goes, well, he said, I, I certainly would always hope that I would be an honest person. So, so I guess I'm open to examine the evidence. So Dr. Rogers, sitting there at the kitchen table, there was a, on the table, there was a little thing of napkins. And he took one of the napkins and he laid it out on the table, opened it up on the table. And he took a pen out of his uh, shirt pocket. And he, and he said, he said, let, he said let, 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 me, let me show you this. He says, imagine this. And he, and he just drew this circle. He said, let's imagine that this circle represents all that is knowable in the universe. All of the knowledge of the universe is contained within this circle right here. The guy says, oh, okay, I get it. Then Dr. Rogers hands him the pen. He says, now, I want you to, to mark out uh, all of the knowledge within the universe that you believe that you contain, that you have. And as Dr. Rogers said, he said, even the most arrogant of persons in the world would only mark a little bit, and so the guy did. He just, he just made, you know, like a, maybe a, a little, little mark right there. And so Dr. Rogers said, he said, okay. He said, now, let me ask you a question. He said, do you think that it's just possible that God could exist out there in all of that area that you don't know anything about? And as Dr. Rogers told, he said, you could tell this kind of light bulb moment came on with this guy. He said, well, I... He said, I got to give you that one. He said, I, I guess that could be true. I, I certainly don't know everything that's knowable in the universe. And so I guess God could exist out there. So I, I guess really I'm not a, a, an atheist, uh, but, I, but I doubt that God exists. So Dr. Rogers said, oh, so, so then you're an agno agnostic. He said, that's right, I'm an agnostic. He said, well, let me ask you a question. Are you an honest agnostic or are you a dishonest agnostic? 
God said, okay, all right, what do you want me to do? I know, I know where this is going. So he said, here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to take your wife's Bible. He said, I want you to open it to the book of John. He said, I just want you to start reading. And I can't remember what he said for the next two weeks, next three weeks. It's been a long time since I heard the story. But he said, just for the next two or three weeks, I just want just read in the book of John. That's all. Just read. Just, just start reading it. And that was it. And Dr. Rogers left. And it was sometime later, some few days, four days, seven, sometime later, Dr. Rogers gets a call about 2.30 in the morning. This guy calls his house and says, you've got to come to my house right now and tell me how to have Jesus in my heart and life. <laughs> Always let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, meeting each person where they are. And some people are at a point where they're like, listen, talk to the hand, not interested. And you say, okay, if I can ever do anything for you, please let me know. And, And that's it. Some people are open to conversations and dialogue. We meet each person where they are. But what we cannot be, what we should not ever be is offensive. Now, let me say this. Sharing that message is offensive. And the anger that a person feels as a result of the message that we say very well may be directed at us, right? We may be the recipients of anger, persecution, whatever, rejection, but we shouldn't be the cause of it. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? It shouldn't be us or who I am or the way I present myself to a person. Because remember this, ladies and gentlemen, I'll put this up, uh, Tyler, actually Tyler will put this up on the screen. The goal is not to win the argument with the person. The goal is to win the person to Christ. In God's timing and as God works with the person and as they're receptive to the gospel. But the goal is not to win the argument. I'm telling you, Paul could have done that. The goal is to win the person or persons to Christ. Don't be offensive. Here's the second idea this morning. Do be theological. Do be theological. Let me uh, read to you beginning in verse 24. Listen to what Paul says. The God who made the world and all things in it. Now remember, this comes right after he, he said this, this unknown God. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you about who this God is. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, verse 27, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Paul quotes, I'm sure you all know this, I had to look it up. Paul quotes, uh, Aratus of Cilicia. That, that's, he says there, even as one of your poets has said, he's quoting Aratus of Cilicia, who would have been a well-known uh, poet and philosopher 
uh, to the people in Athens of that day. Now, Paul quotes Aratus of Cilicia because, maybe partly because it would have shown the Athenian people that, hey, okay, this guy, he, he's, he's educated, he knows a little bit about what he's talking about. It, it would have shown them that, he's, that he knows a little something. But more importantly and more to the point, uh, he quotes Aratus of Cilicia because what Aratus said was true, that we are children of God in the sense that all of us are created in the image of God. We are all a part of this thing. Now, this, this discourse that Paul goes on is fascinating to me as a, as a pastor and a, you know, a, a guy that, that has read and studies a lot on church growth principles and all that kind of stuff. This is a fascinating uh, dialogue in here, discourse in here, because it is so radically different from what you often hear as far as church growth today and what's needed for church growth and, uh, and, and how you bring people to Christ and that sort of thing. Because quite honestly, uh, use a technical term, evangelism or, or sharing the message of Jesus or the hope of bringing people into relationship with Jesus or growing the church from, from, modern, from a modern perspective is very, what I would call, very man-centric. It basically is based on selling, selling the good points of Jesus to people and why you ought to, ought to come to Him. Uh, come to Jesus uh, so you can have joy and, and, and contentment in your life. Trust Jesus as your Savior so, so you can uh, have real fulfillment and, and meaning and, and purpose to your life. Ask Jesus to be your Savior so you get to go to heaven. It is true. There's nothing not wrong about any of those statements, right? All of that is absolutely true. But here's, here's for me, here's what's striking about this. That type of approach to presenting uh, God to people is very man-centric. It's very, hey, here's, here's all the good stuff you get if, if, you, if you come to God. Here's why you ought to come to God. And it's very different from what you see Paul doing here in Acts 17. Paul approaches it from a very theocentric position. Paul starts with God. He doesn't start with man. He doesn't start with, oh, look, look, look at all the fringe benefits you get if you come to Jesus. No, he starts with God. Remember, these people, man, they had a plurality of gods, right? They've got sun gods, moon gods, fertility gods, gods of the water, gods of the river. God, they got all these different kinds of gods. And I have often said this for years, that people don't need to know about God. They need to know God. That's absolutely true. But they, but they can't know God unless they know which God we're talking about. In that culture today, back then, or this culture today. It's important that people understand who we're talking about. So Paul starts from a theologically centered position. He starts with God. And there are three particular areas that Paul points out that we could always use and be very good for us. They certainly were applicable for that particular situation and setting and those people. But he starts with this one. Y'all, are y'all with me? Y'all Okay. I haven't given you many chances to like amen or shout or there hadn't been that kind of message today, right? But you're all right? You're not dozing off? You're Facebooking? Okay. I'll check all your phones. Paul starts with this. God is creator. God is creator. What does he say in verse 24? Look at it. He says, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now, we could probably, given that culture, given the plurality of gods, and as I said, God 
God for this, a God for that, God of the moon, God of the star, God of the sun, God of, of the trees, God of, uh, given, given the plurality of gods, boy, it's easy to understand why Paul would start by establishing the fact that there's, there's one God that created everything. He, he's the one that created everything, and this is the God that you need to know. This is the God that you need to, 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 to build your life on and focus on. He starts with the idea that God is creator. You can understand, I can understand why in that culture, Paul would start with the idea that God is creator. But now think with me for a moment why establishing God as creator would be important for the culture that you and I live in today. Here's the reason. Because the predominant thought or the predominant belief for our origins as a species is known as the theory of evolution. And the the whole premise and or purpose ultimately for the theory of evolution is to, is to show that there is no need to believe in a supernatural God. If we, if we simply came into existence by a, a random set of mutational changes, if, if everything worked out well for us, but that means there is no grand scheme. If, if, if we came into existence Purely by random processes. Now, listen, you, you, you let me know if this doesn't make sense, but if we came into existence by purely random processes, then there is no grand scheme. There is no plan. There is no God. There is no afterlife. There is no heaven. There is no hell. Live the life you want to live. Do the things you want to do. Do whatever you want to do because it doesn't matter because when you, when you, when you die, you die, and that's the end of it all. That is led to it, taken to its logical conclusion. That is where evolution would take us philosophically. It would take us to the fact that there, that there is no God, there is no grand scheme, there is no plan, there is no purpose for my life. I'm simply a cosmic accident. I am a, 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 a random set of mutational changes that happen to work out well for us. So can you understand why, even in today, establishing the fact that God is creator is so important? And can I say this to you? Besides the gigantic elephant in the evolutionist's room, which is the mathematical impossibility for so many systems of complexity to have all come into existence purely by chance, the literal mathematical impossibility of that, besides the fact that evolution violates established laws of science, besides all of that, oftentimes people are simply not given an opportunity in an unbiased way, to examine the empirical evidence as to what best explains our origins and how you and I came into existence, in, in, came to exist in this universe, or the universe came to exist at all. They're simply never given that opportunity. In the secular school system, I'm not, I, I mean, God bless teachers and everybody else is doing, but, but in the secular school system in which we live, uh, students aren't given uh, two possible explanations for our existence, for our origin in their elementary school science classes, in their middle school science classes, in their high school science classes, in their college science classes. They are taught that evolution is science. Creation, supernatural creation, is religion. And you got to separate. Separation, church and state, right? <laughs> all, all of evolution is science, Supernatural creation is religion. Evolution, evolution is built on fact. Evolution or creation is just, a, just a, 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 some mythological book. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, nothing 
could be further from the truth. In fact, an honest evaluation of the, of the evidence. Can I, let me just do this for you. If you want to write these down, please feel free to do this. Let me give you just at least three websites that would present to you some empirical arguments for the rational belief that supernatural creation is actually the best explanation for how we came into existence. Now, remember, why is this important? Because if we came into existence purely by random processes, then there is no God, there is no plan, there is no nothing. And, and what are we even here for? Right? Let me just give you this, just three. Creation.com, that's a good one. ICR, Institute for Creation Research, one I've kept up with for years.org, and uh, AnswersInGenesis.org. Every one of these uh, organizations were founded by and are led by uh, physicists and, and uh, biologists and uh, anthropologists and geologists and all these people who have examined the evidence and have come to the uh, belief that the best explanation for how we came to exist is through a supernatural means and not a natural means. So all I'm saying to you is, and I'm challenging you just, just to say, man, do you, do you know the evidence? Are you examining the evidence? Do you know why you believe what you believe? If you believe in evolution, if you believe it, why do you believe what you believe? And, and can you respond to that and say, wow, I, I, I hadn't really thought about the complexity in the universe and, and how could that happen by pure random, all these kind of things. I just challenge you to make sure that you understand and know what you believe. Paul starts with, God is creator. It's not a bad place for us to start, for people to understand, no, there, there is a God, and he's a creator. And, and there's actually a substantial amount of evidence to point to that reality, that you're not an accident. People need to know that, folks. People need to know that. Here's the second uh, theological point that Paul makes. God is creator, and God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Let me read verse 25, uh, I think in 26 again. And human hands can't serve his needs. Now, remember, because they've got all these gods, right? And they're constantly doing... Human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything. And he satisfies every need from one man. Watch this. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall. And he determined their boundaries to... Two ideas kind of jump out from that. One is kind of a sidebar, but, but two ideas kind of jump out from, from those verses there. The first one is we are family. I, I started to do Sister Sledge, but it, it, just, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't working for me. I was, I was trying to do it, my, my best impersonation, but I couldn't do it. But we... Uh, very young people, that was a song that came out in the... <laughs> Seventies, we 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 played them on this spinning thing. It, it was called a record, and and we would put it on there, right? We are family, da, 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 da. right? Listen, listen. What is it, what is he saying? From one man, from one man, he created all the inhabitants of the earth. Yeah, I, listen. Can I tell you this? There, there's not all these different races in this world. I understand that's how we differentiate and designate and fill out forms and all this stuff. But there aren't all these different races. There's one race. It's the human race. And we're all sin-fallen, and we all need a Redeemer. And I'm just telling you, I, th- I just think if, if the world could figure that out, that, that we're all family, that we're all, we all came from the same person, Adam, I, I just, just think people would treat each other a little better. And I also believe that the best hope that the world has for discovering that truth is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. I really, I really 
I believe that. We are family. And, and, and maybe not, it's not the main point of what he's saying there, but it comes out there. Through one man he created all the. And then the second idea that comes out there is God is large and in charge. That's what it means to say that God is sovereign. God is on his throne. God is in control. God created all, all, the, all the kingdoms of the earth. He, pre, he determined ahead of time when those kingdoms would rise, as they would come, when they would fall, how all of this. God was steering all of this thing towards his intended conclusion. As A.W. Tozer uh, has rightly said, uh, this, this whole thing is a giant ship steering toward the predetermined port of destination that God has decided beforehand. Now, that doesn't mean that human beings aren't making free will choices in this world. Clearly, they are. But God is so sovereign, God is so large and in charge, that He is above and beyond the decisions that mankind makes, and He is accomplishing His purposes. Listen, think why people need to know that. So many people live without hope. So many people believe that life is just a crapshoot. You know, do the best you can, and, and, and I just do the best I can. I hope it works out well, but I, I don't know. And God's saying, no, uh, Paul's saying about God, he says, no, that, that's not it. God is on his throne. God is, is bringing to a conclusion the things that, that, that are part of his creation from the very beginning. And, and ultimately, he is going to, to bring this whole thing towards this, this conclusion where this, this old sin-corrupt, uh, creation will be done away with and there'll be a new creation, a, a new heaven, a new earth where, where those who are God's children, those who have accepted Christ as our Savior will spend eternity with Him. And if somebody wants to say that is a pipe dream, then I would say to you, I would gladly put that in my pipe and smoke it. Because, because not only because it, it fits best with the very character and nature of who God is, but it's what the empirical evidence best supports, that God has had a plan from the very beginning and he is moving this thing towards the conclusion God is large and in charge. God is sovereign. And you and I need to remember that, and people need to know that. Life isn't just an accident, okay? One more. God is personal. Those are, those are the three theological ideas that Paul brings out here. God is creator, God is sovereign, he, he's, he's in control ultimately of, what, of, of how this thing's going to go, and God is personal. Look at it um, in the verses. He did this so that they might, so why did he do this? Why did, why did he do all of this, what he just said about? He did this so they might seek God. Who's they? Mankind. He, all those that he just described, so that they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Being God's offspring, then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, and an image fashioned by human heart and imagination. I love that the New American Standard says that they might, that they might grope for him. Literally, in the original text it would say, it would translate this way, that they might feel after him. I love that. What a perfect description of a fallen world stumbling around in darkness, searching for something in life, searching for the meaning, searching for contentment, searching for some answers. And then Paul adds that beautiful, very personal note. He says, he said that not, though he is not far from each one of us, from God's perspective, it's not hard for a man or a woman to find God. He's not, he's not far from each one of us. Listen, that would have been such a radical concept to the Greeks who thought of, thought of the gods as, as basically uncaring and uninvolved in, in, 
in humanity unless it happened to amuse them to get involved in some way. And Paul shatters that myth by saying, no, no, God's not distant. God's not far from you. God's actually very near to you. God's involved in your life. God has plans and purpose for you. God wants you to know him. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the great news. It was great news uh, on Mars Hill that day to the Athenians, and it's still great news in 2018 to anybody that will hear it. God is personal. God loves you. God has a purpose and a plan for your life, and he wants you to know that purpose and plan, and he wants you to know him. So Paul says, don't, 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 I know this is what you, how you come up and that's what you think. Don't think of God as some image carved out of wood or, or stone or, or gold or, or silver. No, no, he says, that's, that's not how it works. God is not the creation of man. Man is the creation of God. There is a huge difference and people need to know that. God created us and, and, and in his sovereignty, he did it. Why? So that we might seek God. And by the way, I'll just say this in passing and then move on. This, these verses in context with verse 26 ought to put an end to the, to the whole debate about whether any person can come into a relationship with Jesus Christ or whether God chose the people ahead of time that were going to get in. Paul says that anyone, that all of them might seek after him, though he is not far from any one of us. A few years ago, a few years ago, we had a, a family that, that left Cross Culture Church because, they didn't tell me this, but it got back to me. That they left uh, because, and this is what they said, Pastor Clay's messages, are, they're, just, they're just too theological. They're too deep. People don't want to hear that stuff. No, listen to me. There, in the culture in which we live today, there, there may be some truth in that statement. There, there really may be some truth in that, that statement. I understand the culture in which we live. But here's, here's what I've always uh, figured. I figure if I'm, if I'm trying to do it the way Paul does it here, I, I'm not in bad company. And more importantly, I, as a teacher of the Word of God, trying to proclaim truth to, to the body of Christ, know that someday I will give an account to God for what I have given to you. Uh, Paul said this in... Uh, Second Timothy chapter 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, be, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, a.k.a. theology, doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. I'm not, I'm not blowing my own horn, and y'all may, y'all may think I'm being judgmental here, but I'm just telling you, I, I preached from the Second Timothy message, a passage a number of years ago at Southeast Seminary in the chapel service, and I told the students then, and I'll say it to you now, that there are churches on the landscape today in America that have crosses uh, on their steeples, and they ought to take the cross down and put a giant Q-tip up there. Because they're more interested in tickling the people's ears, giving them what they want, rather than convicting their hearts and telling them what they need to hear. And that's true for me standing up here, but it's also for true, true for you. To, if you engage, if you get in this conversation with a person, if you're talking to somebody and they're genuinely open and they want to hear this, it may be a, a stumbling block, it may be a rock of offense, but at some point you've got to say, listen, I want you to know how much God loves you, but I want you to know that you, just like me, are separated from him because of your sin. And the only way out, the only way out is the cross. That's the only way. It, it's okay to be theological. As a matter of fact, I would say it's imperative that we be theological. People have to know that God is creator, 
that God is sovereign, he's ultimately in charge, and that God is personal. You can walk with him, you can know him, you can, you can learn from him, you can, you can enjoy all that he desires for your life now and for all of eternity, but you have to come to him on his terms. That's what people need to know, and that's how we ought to interact with him. The gospel can be offensive to some people, but as we learn today, that doesn't mean we have to be. The Apostle Paul was very respectful of the people in Athens. Humbly, he engaged them with sound theology. They had an idol set up to an unknown God. Paul started where they were and proceeded to tell them who God truly was. Our calling is to do the same. People may get offended by what we say. After all, Jesus is a stumbling block to those too proud to bow to him. But our calling is to humbly present the good news when God opens doors. People can't worship the one true God if they don't know who He is. We invite you to join us on a Sunday morning at Cross Culture Church. We gather each week in a casual and contemporary atmosphere to celebrate the goodness of our God. Cross Culture may be a little different from what you're thinking. Sure, we're a church. But instead of religion, we're about a relationship. A community of believers where Jesus is revealed in the lives of each person. Real people who truly care. Solid biblical teaching from Pastor Clay Stevens. And the most energetic, fun, and safe kids program around. Find out more at crossculture.church. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church in North Raleigh, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.